Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. I'm really grateful that we are able to gather. And I wanted to just take, take a minute on the front end to, to just remember that we're not all here. There's plenty of, plenty of folks from James River that are at home that either uh, can't, you know, it's not safe for them to gather yet, or they're not comfortable gathering yet. So, so this is kind of, uh, we want to be grateful for the privilege that we have to gather physically, or at least take the first steps toward gathering physically. And we also want to remember our friends and brothers and sisters who are at home and recognize that they are not joining us here physically in body, but they're joining us in spirit, and they'll be worshiping with us later on as soon as this goes, on, goes online. But, so with that in view, uh, we're going to keep this short. We're, we're going to try to abbreviate the service. I'm going to try to make this sermon as short as I can so that we can, uh, so that we can yeah, get out of the building as quick as possible and limit our exposure and limit risk and those kinds of things. So I'm going to read through Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to pray, and we're going we're gonna to get to work. It reads, One Sabbath, he, when he, Jesus, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would come and meet us here this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would um, bless our time together, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear um, the glory of your gospel. We ask it in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we'll begin with verse 1. On one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Jesus is still traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. At some point along the way, he passes through a village, and in that village lives a Pharisee, a high-ranking Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees. And that guy is having a meal on the Sabbath, be akin to you know, having, having a bunch of people over for lunch after church or something like that uh, today. So the Pharisees 
Pharisees having this meal. Jesus ends up on the guest list. He's a traveling rabbi teacher who's kind of coming through town. It wasn't uncommon for uh, religious leaders or Pharisees to want to interact with these guys and kind of hear what they're all about and that, that kind of thing. So they invite Jesus over. It might be uh, with kind of noble intentions that he wants to he wants to welcome Jesus. He wants to learn from Jesus. He wants to, uh, you know, interact with Jesus. Uh, more likely, they were trying to trap him. More likely, this ruler and then his, the people that were there with him, lawyers and the rest of the Pharisees, were probably trying to trap Jesus um, and kind of find a way that they could publicly criticize him or kind of tell people not to, not to follow him. And we can kind of surmise that because of the next phrase. They were watching him carefully. So they're scrutinizing Jesus's every move. They're keeping, they're taking notes and keeping track of everything that he does and what he says and who he interacts with so that they might be able to criticize or to, you know, rebuke him for something. And then verse two, behold, there was a man there who had dropsy. Dropsy is a medical condition. I had to look it up this week on WebMD. Um, it's a medical condition. It's like excessive swelling, uh, like fluid retention. A lot of times it happens in your limbs, but it can be pretty serious, right? It can, it can actually, uh, like you, it, the swelling and the, the fluid retention could put pressure on your internal organs and, and you could even die from organ failure uh, because of it. And so, so Jesus is here at this meal. This guy with dropsy or also called edema uh, is, is right uh, in front of him. And the Pharisees are all kind of watching, right? They're all on the edge of their chairs looking to see how Jesus is going to respond, what he's going to do. A lot of scholars uh, conclude that this man was invited uh, expressly for this purpose. He wasn't, you know, they, they conclude that he would have never been on the guest list otherwise because uh, this is probably a, an affair specifically catered to high society, the, the Pharisees' rich friends and people that they could, you know, have favor, that they want owing them favors. And here's this guy who is further down the social class structure and who is struggling and suffering. And so they conclude he would never have been invited unless he was there specifically as a as a, 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 in, to entrap Jesus into doing something that they could, could rebuke. So, so they bring this guy. They're, they're essentially using him as a pawn. They sit him right in front of Jesus. They're all sitting there with bated breath, watching to see what Jesus is going to do, watching to see if he's going to react in some way. And then Jesus realizes that they're all watching him and that they're all looking to try and address him or looking to try to you know, confront him. So he just addresses it outright. And he says, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they, and they remain silent, right? So they, 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 on, on the surface, it looks like an easy question. All right, guys, you all are lawyers, experts in the law, Pharisees, religious leaders. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You have the whole Old Testament memorized, as it were. So just tell me, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? This should be an easy question, but it's not. It's a, it's a difficult question that they struggle to answer. In fact, they're unwilling to answer, presumably because uh, they don't really have a... No matter what they say, they're going to they're gonna wind up regretting what they said, right? If they say, yes, uh, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then they, their whole plot is foiled, right? We have this plot that was to bring Jesus into this, this gathering, to bring a man who needs to be healed and sit him right in front of Jesus so that when Jesus heals him, we can accuse him. And so if we say, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then that whole plan is shot. All of the work that we did to, get, to set up this situation right here is all for naught. Not to mention, if we say, yes, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then we will effectively be rolling back 
a rule, right? Like a rule that we, that we made up that says you're not supposed to do this and that. And we, we love rules. We, we feel good about ourselves because of how well we follow the rules. And we like to, you know, uh, bludgeon other people and tell them how they are not following the rules as well as we are or as well as we do. So we can't say yes. We can't say that it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But we also can't say no because that would be... Uh, a, a very unpopular stance to take right here in front of this man who's suffering, in front of all of these, these people. Right? We, we don't want to come out now publicly with a strong anti-healing, anti-compassion uh, you know, platform. That's not going to help us for, for re-election. Right? No, no one's going to celebrate us for being against healing and against compassion. So they're kind of stuck. We can't say yes because that will foil our plan. We can't say no because that won't be popular with people and we love the praise of people and we love the commendation from people. So they just sit there uh, in silence. And so Jesus, after this kind of awkward pause where they remain silent, Jesus takes the man with dropsy and he heals him and he sends him away. Which, of course, was scandalous to the religious leaders. Right? They, they were too cowardly to tell Jesus verbally and explicitly beforehand that they think that he should not do it, but they're also too prideful to just accept it and to embrace it and to like, rejoice in it and to be okay with it. So, so the, Jesus sees uh, that, they're, that they're upset. He sees that they're scandalized. He sees that they're offended. And he says to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, which of you will not immediately pull him out, right? I realize that you guys are upset. I realize that you guys are judging me for what I just did, for the healing that just took place. So let's go ahead and, and address it, right? Let's go, ahead and, let's go ahead and take your line of thinking Right, where you're upset that I healed this man, and let's kind of run it out to its logical conclusion. Right? You're not willing to say that it's bad to heal on the Sabbath, but clearly you think that it's bad to heal on the Sabbath. So let's just go ahead and, and uh, understand what exactly you're saying and what you're not saying. Right? So, so imagine, that, imagine that an animal that you had uh, fell into a well. Right? Imagine that some, uh, an animal that you had a significant uh, you know, financial investment in that you had bought and you were kind of counting on this animal to produce other animals for you so that you could kind of grow your herd and grow your, your wealth. Imagine that it fell and that it was going to get sick or, or die. Or, you know, imagine, so imagine you buy a new car and you park it in the driveway and you leave the windows down by accident and then it starts raining. It's like a torrential downpour. And you just spent thousands of dollars on this car, and all you could do, you know, it's Sunday, you could just run outside and roll the windows up and save, you know, you know, save this multi-thousand dollar investment, or you could just leave it there and have it be, be ruined. Jesus is saying, of course you would just temporarily, like, you would temporarily press pause on this, like, rule that you're so devoted to, just to run outside really quick and roll the windows up in your car, just to run outside and, and uh, get this ox that, are, or not even, not even an ox, like, not even property, but your son, right? Imagine that, you're, imagine that a family member that you love, your heir that you're going to give all of your stuff to, that you love, that you've devoted your life to providing for and to protecting and to taking care of. Imagine it's Sunday and he, you know, he, he, yeah, he goes into cardiac arrest. Are you going to not, you know, call 911? Are you going to not take him to the hospital? Are you not going to take care of him and make sure that he, that he lives and that he is okay just because it's, the, the Sabbath, and the, the presumed answer is, of course not. 
Of course, no matter, no matter who you are, no matter how devoted you are to the rules about the Sabbath, if your ox falls into a well or if your son falls into a well, you're going to go take care of them, right? You're, you would happily bend the rules, which, the rules that admittedly the Pharisees made up, right? You, you would happily bend the rules that you made up in order to go take care of your son or your animal because they're important to you. Your son and your animal matter to you. You love them. You care about them. You, and you, lo- you love your son and you love your animal more than you care about following a rule that you made up. And so here's a person who's suffering. Here's a person who is hurting and in pain and you're not willing to bend your rule for this person, right? It's not, it's not because you suddenly care about the Sabbath more now than you would if it was your own son who was suffering or hurting. Uh, it's, it's just that you don't, care about this man as much as you care about your, your son or your, your animal, right? You're being, you're being extra careful to follow a lesser law to, of what you should and should not do, this particular list of these things on the Sabbath versus not, but at the very same time, you're breaking a more important law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, the problem here is not that I don't love God enough to observe his laws about the, the Sabbath. The problem is that you don't love your neighbor enough and that you are indifferent to the suffering of your, of your neighbor. Now, it's worth, it's worth mentioning here that um, this text doesn't necessarily mean that all rules are bad, right? If, if kind of the overarching theme of these first six verses is uh, we should be more concerned with loving our neighbor than we are concerned with making up and then following rules uh, about behavior, that doesn't necessarily mean that all rules are bad. It's not, it's not even the case that observing the Sabbath is, is bad, right? Observing the Sabbath is a perfectly viable, perfectly good, perfectly healthy thing, provided that you're doing it for the right Reasons, plenty of good reasons why you would observe the Sabbath as a Christian, uh, you know, as as a as a follower of Jesus in the first century, or as a Christian today, right? Um, God told us to, right? So, what what are some good reasons why we should observe the Sabbath as Christians? God commanded; it's one of the Ten Commandments. God commanded us to observe the Sabbath. So, if we love God and we want to live in a way that pleases God, then we would want to obey His laws and and observe the Sabbath. That's a good reason to observe the Sabbath. Another reason is. God did it himself. God himself observed a Sabbath. God worked for six days and then rested for one day. And so if we love God and we want to be like God and we want to live like God lives and kind of embody the character of God, then we would want to observe the Sabbath like God observed the Sabbath. Or just uh, for the sake of our own physical, mental, spiritual, emotional health, right? Uh, we, we recognize that, it's, that we work all day long, all week long, day in, day out, and it's a grind, and your body can get worn down, and your soul can get worn down, and for the sake of your own soul, it's helpful and healthy to take a break and to have a Sabbath one day a week. These are good reasons why we would want to observe a Sabbath day as Christians, or, or to guard against uh, self-sufficiency, to guard against uh, trusting in myself. If, if all I ever do is just work all day, every day, and I'm constantly working, and I'm constantly earning, and I'm constantly, you know, acquiring, and I'm constantly accumulating, and I'm constantly building this, like, safety net to where I don't have to ever depend on anyone else, 
then my heart might be tempted to slide into self-sufficiency. The Sabbath, uh, one of the reasons for the Sabbath is that God says, I want you as an act of discipline one day to not earn anything, not do anything, so that you actually on that day have to trust someone other than yourself for your daily bread. So there's plenty of good reasons to observe the Sabbath, but there's plenty of bad reasons to observe the Sabbath. And presumably that's what Jesus is confronting here with these, with these Pharisees, right? If the, if the reason why we observe the Sabbath is, you know, I want to be perfect. I want to follow all the rules. I want everyone to know that I'm following all the rules. I, I don't want to owe anything to anyone. I don't want to have to apologize to anyone. I don't want to have to say I'm sorry to anyone. I don't want anyone to ever have anything on me because then they'll have leverage and then they'll, I'll be kind of under their, their thumb. So I want to make sure that I follow every rule to a T so that no one can ever have anything on me. That's a prideful, self-righteous reason of why someone would want to observe the Sabbath. Or um, I... I want to brag about how good I am. I, I, I want to feel better about myself. I want to uh, you know, feel like I'm okay in my own skin because of how faithfully and how well I observe the laws that I made up. It's a, it's a prideful, self-righteous, sinful reason to observe the Sabbath. Or, or I, I want to judge other people. I want to uh, you know, bust other people's chops for how poorly they're observing the Sabbath. And in order to do that, I have to make sure that I observe the Sabbath really carefully so that I can kind of be in a position where I can judge them, right? There, there, there are plenty of, plenty of good reasons to observe the Sabbath, plenty of bad reasons to observe the Sabbath. And Jesus says you should be more concerned with loving your neighbor than you are concerned with making up rules and following them and in so doing completely missing the spirit and the heart of the laws that God, uh, that God gave us. That's the first point. First point, verses 1 through 6, love your neighbor, be more concerned with loving your neighbor than you are concerned with making up rules and and following them. And then we see our second point in verse 7 and following. Jesus looks around at all the people who are invited to the party, and he notices a particular behavior. He notices how they are choosing places of of honor, right? Everyone is jockeying for position. Everyone's trying to get the best seat in the house, right? There's all these young, able-bodied men who are scrambling to get the best seats and leaving old people and pregnant women standing because they, you know, they don't want them to have the, the seats of honor. And Jesus can't help but, but roll his eyes a little bit. He says, when, you, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Ouch. But when you're invited, instead, go and sit in the lowest place so that when, your ho- when the host comes up to you, he may say to you, friend, here, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. So, so the, the tables in the ancient Near East were usually a, a U-shaped table. There were no chairs. People would sit on the floor. They'd either have cushions or, or places that you could sit. You'd kind of sit. You'd recline. You'd kind of be leaning on your, your elbow. Your feet would kind of be fanned out behind the table, away from the table. And the, the host would get the best seat at the meal, the best seat at the party. And it would be right in the middle of the U-shaped table would be where the host is. And then the, every seat of honor, would, like the closer you are to the host, the better it is. So immediately on his right, and immediately on his left are going to be the, the, the most honorable seats. Well, you know, in the Gospel of John, when John says that the, the disciple that Jesus loved was reclining next to him and his head was resting on his chest, that, that's because John was in the seat of honor right next to Jesus and reclining next to him. <clears throat> 
So Jesus sees all of these people scrambling to try to get the best seats, the most honorable seats right in the center. This would be like at a wedding, right? Like there's like spots up front for the mother and father of the bride and groom and like taking that, like just a regular guy, like walking in, walking right up past everyone and sitting in this like seat of honor that's specifically being held for someone else that like it's kind of in order to honor them and in order to kind of celebrate them, this is their special day and you take their seat and feel totally justified in doing so. Yeah, this, this seems right. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to enjoy this, this spot. So Jesus sees these people scrambling for the best seats, <clears throat> and he sees their hearts. He knows it's because they're proud. He knows it's because they want to be celebrated. They think they're the best. They want everyone else to think that they're the best. They want all the glory. They want all the praise. They want all the, the honor. And Jesus says, if you want to be honored, the way to be honored is not by trying to, to grasp for and try to grapple for honor. The way to be honored is to be humble. Right? If you want to be honored, start by being humble. If, if you set out with the intention of being honored, if you're clamoring and striving for a position of honor, you won't be honored. You'll be humiliated. Rather, if you start with a place of contentment and just you know, uh, taking a, a, a humble position, then that's the way to be, to be honored. Right? What's, what's inevitably going to happen if you are grasping for the maximum amount of honor is that someone, someone of a higher rank is going to come in. You're going to get embarrassed. You're going to get bumped down. If you take a posture of humility, instead of like forcing your way in and instead of trying to, you know, take all of the honor and all of the glory by force, if you just kind of uh, take a position of humility, then frankly, there's nowhere to go but up, right? The first will be last or the last will be first. Or as Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which is not how the world operates, right? The, 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 so this, this kind of advice of, of, you know, if you want to be honored, then just be humble and stay in the background and kind of get out of, uh, out of the field of vision. And if you want to be humiliated, then, then kind of jump, force yourself right into the, the front of things is not necessarily how the world works, right? The, the world system and the world economy does not always reward uh, people who are humble. It doesn't always reward people who take the lowest position. More often than not, the world's economy tends to reward people who are pushing and grasping and trying to get to the front and trying to have the seat of, of honor, right? I used to work in, in retail, <clears throat> and there's a phrase that I heard all the time that, that like, we would use to, to kind of just uh, you know, ease, appease the consciences of people who were offended that people were getting special treatment, which is that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And basically what it means is, you know, if a customer comes in and they're rude and they're pushy and they're raising their voice and they're, you know, they, I want to speak to a manager and they make you feel like an idiot or they belittle you, chances are we're just going to give that guy what he wants. So, like, so just like check your pride at the door. Where like if, if someone comes in and they don't want to pay full price or they don't want to wait the appropriate amount of time or whatever, they're being, like unless they're, unless they're drunk or unless they're being violent or swearing, right, then we'll call the cops and we'll have them escorted out. But other than that, if they're just being rude and pushy and obnoxious and making a scene, the, the path of least resistance is just to give them what they want and then move on with life instead of like trying to have some principled stand about their, about their behavior. So, so the system is rewarding people who are trying to exalt themselves, people who are being pushy and trying to get to the front of the line and try to, they want the seats of honor. And Jesus says that's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God does not exalt those who are trying to be exalted. 
and, and humble those who are willingly humbling themselves, it flips it. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself, this, this, so one, one uh, scholar calls this eschatological reversal. Meaning, uh, so eschatology means, uh, you know, the, the last things. The eschaton means last. So eschatology means the study of the last things, the study of when Jesus comes back and establishes his eternal kingdom. And so eschatological reversal means that uh, God's kingdom and the economy of God's kingdom is opposite of, it, it kind of flips, it's upside down compared to our kingdom and our economy and our world that we're living in now. And so Jesus says it might be that in this life, the way to get ahead is to be pushy, right? And to be loud and to be an alpha male and, and you know, might makes right. And if you don't get what you want, then go take it by force. And, and, and that, that might be how you get what you want in this life. But in the kingdom of God, the way to be honored is to be humble. The loud, the proud, the pushy, the self-exalting. These are people that get humiliated in God's kingdom, and the quiet, and the meek, and the humble, and those who do not seek to exalt themselves, these are people who get honored in God's kingdom. So point one, Jesus looks at the Pharisees who are watching him, trying to catch him so that they can pick a fight with him, and he responds by healing the man and by confronting their sin and folly. Point number two, Jesus looks at all the people of the party, watches them jockey for position and jockey for seats of honor, and he responds by telling them to be content with the least honorable positions, lest they be publicly humiliated. And then, in, uh, and then point three, Jesus turns his attention not to the Pharisees and the rulers, not to the people that are there at the party, but to the one singular host, the man who invited him in verse 12. He says to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will then be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus is looking, he's seeing a recurring theme of all of the guests at this meal. They're all rich, they're all, they're all kind of high class, they're all you know, uh, influential, they're all elites. With, presumably with the one exception being the guy who had dropsy, who was probably invited there specifically as a pawn to try to catch Jesus and, and trap him. <clears throat> so he looks around, he sees all of these kind of the who's who of this particular town or, or village, and he realizes that this, this guy, aside from Jesus and aside from the guy with dropsy, all he's doing is inviting people that he wants owing him favors. He's inviting people that he wants, uh, you know, kind of on his... He wants to collect chits from them. He wants, you know, he wants, uh, he's networking. And he wants to make sure that these people are kind of on his good side so that he can call in a favor later. And Jesus says that's no reason to do anything, right? That's, that's no reason, right? What you're doing is not uh, generosity at all. It's probably, it's more akin to, uh, you know, you're, you're not, you're, God's not going to commend you for your generosity or for your kindness or for your hospitality. If anything, he's going to commend you maybe for your shrewdness, or your political savvy, or something like that. Um, but remember, God, you know, the, the, the concept of eschatological reversal means that uh, the shrewdness and the political savvy that we tend to place a high value on in this life, God is not terribly impressed with shrewdness or with political savvy. He's, he's more likely to commend someone for true generosity and true uh, kindness, 
which is only real generosity, is only real kindness if it's done without an ulterior motive that's selfish or self-serving. So Jesus says, when you go to throw a feast, don't invite these people. Invite uh, the poor and the crippled and the lame and the, the blind. This is a fourfold descriptor of a particular kind of people or a particular group of people. We're going to see this, uh, this same fourfold descriptor come up in our text next week. Um, at, at, and it's, uh, it's kind of meant to embody a group of people who have nothing to offer. A group of people who have nothing to offer, they, they cannot repay you. A group of people that, um, that are completely reliant on the generosity and the kindness of, of others. And so in the text next week, Jesus' big point is, that's who God loves. That's who God intentionally seeks after. That's who God wants to save. God wants to extend his kindness and his grace to people like that. People that don't deserve it. People that cannot repay God for it. God intentionally uh, goes after people like that. And Jesus is saying in this text this week, that's who we should love. And that's who we should prioritize as well. If God loves and prioritizes people who cannot repay him, then we should in turn love and prioritize people who cannot repay us. We might not, we might not get repaid for our love and kindness and generosity and hospitality in this life. In fact, it's, it's all but certain that we will not be repaid for our love and kindness and generosity and hospitality in, in this life. But we will be repaid for it at the resurrection of the just, meaning that the world might not see and the world might not care whether or not you're generous to people who cannot repay you, but God sees and God cares. So Jesus looks at the behavior of these lawyers and these Pharisees and he's prompted to give an exhortation, right? The, the, the religious elites at this party, he gives them this exhortation that says, love your neighbor more than you love making up rules and following them. Jesus looks at all of the people at the party who are jockeying for position and he gives them this exhortation, be humble, repent of your pride, cultivate humility, be content where you are and wait for God to honor you rather than trying to grasp for your own glory and being humiliated. And then Jesus looks at the one singular host of the party and he's prompted to give this exhortation, love your neighbor, but specifically Love your neighbor without an ulterior motive, without a selfish, self-serving motive where you're scheming and planning and politicking and just trying to love your neighbor for, so that they will give you something in return. No, instead, love your neighbor for the sake of loving your neighbor. Which... Of course, is exactly what Jesus has done for us, right? These kind of three points that we see Jesus work through, love your neighbor more than you obsess about making and following rules, be humble and not proud, and love your neighbor without a, a selfish ulterior motive. These are exactly what we see Jesus display for us in the gospel, right? Jesus is, is in heaven, ruling over the universe from his throne. His people that he loves rebel against him, Right? And they, they incur the wrath of God and they're separated from God. And Jesus could have, Jesus had every right to, and he had every opportunity to respond just like the religious leaders did at this party by saying, Well, that's a shame. I wish there was something I could do, but rules are rules. I don't like it any more than you do, but the rule is that, that you have to pay for your own sin, and so now you have to spend an eternity in hell, and there's nothing I can do about it, there's nothing I'm going to do about it, have a nice life and have a nice eternity. But instead, Jesus 
comes to us. Jesus saves us because he loves us, because he's concerned with the welfare of his people. Jesus was humble and not proud. Jesus could have looked at what it would take to save his people from their sin, right? I'm going to have to leave my uh, throne in heaven. I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to become a person. I'm going to have to be born as a baby. I'm going to have to grow up as a, as a poor blue-collar worker. I'm going to have to, you know, uh, eventually become a, a homeless, broke, itinerant preacher. And then I'm going to have to give my life as a sacrifice for sin, all of that is beneath me. All of that is, uh, I am too big and too good and too grand and too glorious to do any of that, so I'm not going to do it. Jesus could have said that, but instead he came to us to save us because he's humble and not prideful. And Jesus could have loved us uh, selfishly. He could have loved us with an ulterior motive. Jesus could have prioritized the, the people who had the most to offer him in return. Jesus could have prioritized people with the most money, the most resources, the most influence. Jesus could have prioritized and saved people who could throw him lavish parties in return, who could give him the best gifts. But instead, Jesus comes to and Jesus saves the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Jesus saves people who have zero spiritual capital to offer him whatsoever. People who could not save themselves and people who could not repay Jesus for his having saved him. In fact, the only thing they have to offer is... uh, is, is gratitude. It's, it's, it's worship. And so Jesus saves people who cannot repay him. He saves people who have nothing to offer so that they will spend an eternity offering their gratitude and their worship back to him for his having saved them. And that is exactly what we remember and what we celebrate and what we observe together uh, when we take communion is this fact that Jesus saves his people. Jesus humbly goes to the cross for his people. Jesus' body is broken for his people. Jesus' blood is spilled for his people. And then they respond to the person and work of Jesus by remembering him and by receiving him and by trusting in him and by walking with him and by worshiping him together as a family. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had broken it, he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took a cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our communion elements this morning are in uh, pre-packaged, kind of sealed, sanitized, uh, you know, uh, packages here. So during the song of response, when Jason comes up to, to lead us, uh, just you can kind of observe social distancing, but kind of come up to the front, grab a package for communion, take it back to your, to your seats. You can uh, take a moment to remember the gospel and to worship God and to thank him for saving you. You can eat the, the bread thing that's in it. You can drink the juice that's in it. Then you can throw the throw the, the stuff away in a, a trash can in the back that has a, has a liner in it. Um, if you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against that. So instead, we would ask you, instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ and to trust in Jesus and to believe in the gospel and to be received as a part of his family. So I'm going to invite Jason to come up and, and uh, lead us in song. I'm going to pray to close, and then we're going to take communion and have a song of response. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've loved us. We thank you that you have come to us to serve us and to save us from our sin. 
We thank you that you have demonstrated great humility to save us. We thank you, Lord, that you saved us even when we have nothing to offer, even when we are uh, spiritually poor and crippled and blind and lame. We thank you, Lord, for the glorious salvation that is ours freely through your life and through your death and through your resurrection. We look to you and we trust you and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.